Sinia. And I'm Maya. And we've been friends for a long time. But our friendship was brought even closer since both of us experienced unimaginable tragedies with the loss of our babies. Maya, whose son Leo died at just 10 days old, and my daughter Isabel, who was stillborn at 33 weeks. Since then, our lives have taken us on very different and unexpected paths, not only having to navigate grief, but also some of the more unconventional ways of having a baby. This is Making It to Motherhood, a podcast where we talk about grief, life after loss, journeys to motherhood, and all the ups and downs along the way. So this week, we're talking about genetics and how a rare genetic disorder might affect how you decide to have your next baby. Welcome back to another episode of Making It to Motherhood. Zin, how have you been? I've been good, thanks, Maya. This week, I am officially on maternity leave. Ah, yay! Although I'm not quite sure what to call it. Intended parent leave, as perhaps it's known in the surrogacy world. Getting ready. (laughs) Exactly. Anyway, I am enjoying life in the middle lane as opposed to the super fast crazy one that I'm normally in. How about you? I'm good. It's raining in the Cayman Islands today. I mean, I would feel sorry for you, but I don't. It's July here and I don't think I've seen sunshine yet. Sorry. Sorry, Han. Well, came in sympathising with you today. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. So today, Maya is going to give us a bit of a science lesson and tell us how her and her husband, Rich, came to have their second child following the death of their firstborn son, Leo, who died at 10 days old from a rare genetic disorder. So Maya, you told us so beautifully in episode one, the heartbreaking story of Leo's journey and his diagnosis of MKH. Before you go into sort of next steps, can you give us a little bit of info of what exactly is NKH? Yeah, sure. I mean, I can't believe that you're not saying non-catotic hyperglycinemia, frankly. (laughs) My apologies. (laughs) But NKH, which stands for non-catotic hyperglycinemia, is effectively, it's really rare genetic metabolic disorder. It is caused by a mutation in the GLDC gene. And effectively, it means that kids or people with it are unable to break down the amino acid glycine. And the accumulation of that glycine just poisons the body. That is a very simplified kind of summary of it. But sadly, that kind of poison, if you like, means that children born with it never make it past the neonatal stage of development or sort of one month, two month milestones. And it's incurable and it's terminal, causes severe, severe disabilities and uncontrollable seizures. So it's miserable. It is really, really shit. And bless little Leo was born with it. And you you found that out quite early. Is 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 that right? Yeah. A pediatrician before we, our pediatrician here before we were medevac to Miami kind of called it. She'd seen a couple of cases of it in her years in London before she moved to, to Cayman. But she called it, but we obviously weren't sure. It could have been a million other things that was causing some of his symptoms. But yeah, I'd say that was day four or day five that, that she kind of threw it out there. And then by day seven, we had his diagnosis. 
However, he was diagnosed through an MRI scan and various other tests that kind of pointed to it. But the MRI scan really showed because in a severe case of NKH, basically your your corpus callosum, which which connects your left and your right side of your brain, doesn't develop. Um, and they could see that really clearly from the MRI. But really, you should have bloods kind of confirm NKH or any kind of genetic disorder. Now, those bloods took, I think, three or four weeks. So we didn't actually get those results until after he'd passed away, which was a pretty nerve wracking set of results to receive, even though, you know, everyone at the hospital was giving us a hundred percent reassurance that it was NKH. And our doctors in Miami had been speaking to the head researcher over in Boston of NKH and they'd sent all of Leo's results and he'd come back and they showed us the emails and the WhatsApps just saying, yeah, 100%, you know, severe NKH, classic case. But still, you know, getting those blood test results, you really don't want it to say, meh, we were wrong, you know. So getting that confirmation in the blood tests was pretty huge. Yeah. And I guess you just want to know for sure before you can think about moving on and th- considering the next steps, because I guess being a genetic disorder, it's going to affect how you then go on to have your next baby. So sort of what was the process that you went down to having a second and where on earth did you start? (laughs) Well, it kind of all happened fairly, I guess, organically and systematically. So when, so so, so, say we got these blood test results and it was amazing if the doctors before even Leo passed away, we were talking about with withdrawing life support. And they said, you have to take bloods from this baby. You have to get the bloods to send off to genetic testing to help your future family planning. And obviously in that moment, it's kind of the last thing on your mind, right? Like another blood test, like fine, take more bloods from the poor child. And, you know, if we had had Leo and we were sort of talking about future family planning 10 years ago, It's probably very little that the hospital would have done. Genetics has come such a long way that it's amazing that we were in this scenario where the doctors were saying, take bloods, get tested, you know, this can help you in the future. Had we had him 10 or even five years ago, the kind of response from the hospital probably would have been like, ever so sorry, you you know, try again. And then there's a one in four chance of it happening again. Now we know that Rich and I are both carriers, which is what caused the disorder in Leo. So I'm going to ask you about that. So one in four chance of that happening again. Yeah. So, so yeah. human body has something like 3000 genes. Again, this is a science lesson from a non-scientist. So here we go. <laughs> 3000 genes. And each of those genes has two strands and you inherit one from each parent. So if you think about kind of tassels on a rug, that's that's each gene has kind of two tassels. You get mm. one from mummy, one from daddy. So Rich and I both have one good GLDC strand and one bad one. And we could pass on the good ones to our children or we could pass on the bad ones. If we If one of us passes on the bad one and the other one passes on a good one, it's all good because that's effectively what we are. We're carriers. But if we both pass on our bad one, then that's a perfect storm and that would cause another case of NKH. But what are the chances of someone having a bad one? 
I actually don't know what the chances of being a carrier are, but I think the chances of them combining specifically for NKH is something like one in 70,000. Wow. Yeah. I mean, so sort of pretty, pretty high. <laughs> yeah. Well, and well, it's pretty of, high in terms of like, you're like, you're very unlucky if you are that one in 70,000. Yeah. 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 Really unlucky. And you're never going to know, right? I mean, and even now we know that we're carriers. We said, you know, should ask our siblings get tested um, to see if they're also carriers. And the doctors were like, well, no, because the chances of them also then reproducing with another carrier is just so, it's just so unlikely that no. Which is reassuring for them, I suppose. <laughs> reassuring for them, yeah. And so we, we receive Leo's blood test results and we're kind of reading through them saying, oh, thank goodness, you know, everything's confirmed. You know, we didn't make any of the wrong calls or whatever. And at the bottom of his results, it said something along the lines of, you qualify for free family follow-up testing. And I just completely, I guess, ignored it. I just didn't even understand what that meant. And Rich read that and went, I'm going to call this lab. And this lab (laughs) is somewhere in California. We're in the Cayman Islands. And he calls them and they said, yeah, your mutations are actually really interesting and we don't know much about this gene and you know we're still learning about what it can cause in children and all of that kind of stuff so you you know we want more info you qualify for for free testing if you guys want to get tested and we were like well hell yeah we want to get tested because we want to have more kids you know somewhere along the line and so we talked to these geneticists in California, amazing people, really amazing people. So geneticists that do this kind of work are called genetics counsellors, which is kind of weird to get your head around. They're not counselling you about your kind of family problems, but they're counselling you through your genetics kind of journey. Right. Okay. Wow. Wow. What a job title. <laughs> I know, right? Through the science piece. And they're the people that then go and do the science. I really hope I'm not doing geneticists a disservice by talking about it like this. Can I also say how well how well you're doing at saying the word geneticists several times? Because it's a bit of a tongue twister, isn't it? I've said it a lot <laughs> through this process. So anyway, they they tell us that we qualify for free follow-up. And so we plow down that road and this is kind of you know only weeks have passed and when you say kind of where did we start this is how it kind of started all falling into place we were like well we qualify for free follow-up so let's start there great that it starts with a freebie it, right <laughs> um not a lot else was free <laughs> quite the opposite but let's let's hold on to the freebie at the beginning and we send off our bloods and they come back with our results, which were that we did both have mutations on the GLDC gene, but mine is one that they know about. So I guess they've had enough cases of it show up in the past that they're like, yep, that that causes NKH, you know, job done. Rich's was statistically insignificant. So basically, they'd only seen a few people with his specific mutation And I guess the mutation can be different in that strand, you know, in every case. So they were like, well, you know, you've had a kid with NKH. Your wife also has a mutation. Pretty freaking likely that this is what's caused it. But we as scientists 
can't say that it's statistically significant yet. Now, we might see one more case of it and all of a sudden that pushes it over to statistically significant. But right now we can't tell you that we're sure. But we were like, you know what, we're going to take this and run with it because frankly, what else is causing it? So there's, you know, kind of still a little, little unknown, I guess, there, but we were as sure as we kind of wanted to be Mm. to go to the next stage. And the next stage then is talking to an IVF clinic and the IVF clinic here in Cayman had just opened and a fantastic doctor from New York, um, really up to speed with all the latest technologies, if you like, available in genetic testing. So we spoke to him, told him our story, and he was like, yeah, we can we can work with this. Might be a little bit complicated, but but pretty sure we can do it. So Did you find that he was sort of quite interested in your story because it wasn't the kind of standard IVF treatment and as a scientist with you know as a background in science he sort of was geekily interested in that kind of stuff yeah and I think because we were geekily interested in it we were all just quite excited really I think to do you know I have to give him credit that he is a fantastic doctor I'm going to call him out by name Dr Davis he is so passionate I I believe about every case that he he deals with that I don't want to say that he you know found ours any more special than anyone else's but I you know we we had several conversations with him about you know where the world of genetics is going and obviously ours was a real I guess need to make sure that we didn't pass on a terminal disorder and something really miserable to our children but he is getting cases of people wanting to choose the sex of their baby and those things I mean we can come on to that in another in another podcast, maybe we should interview him. But, you know, those I think those are really interesting subjects. So we had some really cool conversations with him and with all the geneticists, actually. There we go again. I've said it again. With all the geneticists that we worked with, because it is a really fascinating field and it's kind of growing so quickly. But yeah, I think our case for him was interesting from the genetic standpoint. We were, you know, hopefully going to be a bit of a a shoe in for the actual IVF process because we knew we actually were fertile and I could carry and, you know, carry to term and all of those things. So we just had to solve the, this genetics puzzle. And, and it was brilliant that he was like, yeah, I'm, I'm on board to help you as I'm just kind of sticking the logo on my clinic doors. So we're on, we got with it and we spoke to these um, genetics counselors that had done our our testing and said, what's next? And they then needed to get swabs from our families. So now remember that our families are in the UK. Um, Genetics Clinic is in California and our IVF clinic is in the Cayman Islands. (laughs) And why did they need swabs from your families? So what they do next, what the geneticists do next is they build a genetics probe and basically it's a test. It's not a big stick that you go kind okay, of... Okay, <laughs> because that is what was going through my head, as you said. Probe. Things. It's not. It's, oh God, how do I describe a genetics probe? Can we fly, can, can we get a geneticist on the line? So a probe is basically, what I understand it to be, is a, t- a test that they develop specifically for your family with all of the DNA from your family. And they then map 
the DNA or, yeah, the DNA from an embryo against it or the DNA of any person against it. So it then can like throw up whether there's a match or a mismatch. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yes, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I've just (laughs) typed into Google, genetic probe is a fragment of DNA which is labeled in DNA samples to detect the present presence of nucleotide. I mean, no, we're not going there with the Google. My my definition is better, frankly. Yeah, I lost you already. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think basically they, they search for a sequence of one DNA against a sequence of, you know, another another piece of DNA. And this probe building took, I think, three or four weeks and specific to our family, it can't be used. It's not going to help any other family. So you, you can imagine that it, that bit wasn't a freebie. <laughs> and, and how are your family doing? So are they taking a swab? So yeah, our families were sent a kit and they just had to take a, a swab of their mouths, pop that back in the kit and send it off. So the lab that we used are called iGenomics. I think there's three or four kind of labs across the world that, that offer this sort of service, if you like, or they had locations in the UK. So I guess they can pop that into their database and then share it with with the US with their California lab. So it was all actually pretty straightforward once we got going and pretty quick. We were told it could take months. And again, had we been doing this, you know, five years ago, building this probe would have probably taken two years. Oh my goodness. And now we were talking about getting it in six weeks. And I think it took less time than that. God, that's amazing, isn't it? The speed, because when you are, let's just say that when you're going through baby loss and your mind is on the next baby, every single day and week you have to wait before you can actually start putting your plan into action is, it drags on. Yeah. And I think also because we weren't, I mean, we were getting closer and closer to knowing that we did want to have another baby in short order, but we hadn't completely made up our minds about that we were still just at a point where we wanted to know that it was possible Mm. so I guess having the probe made even during that process they were like we're going to try and make this probe but you know it it might not work type thing you know there are instances where we try and make a probe and we kind of can't get all the information we need and you know something goes wrong you know we can't do it but you know waiting two years for them to say yay or nay would have been, as you can appreciate, kind of even more excruciating. But knowing that they'll, they'd have it in a few weeks and then at least that option was available to us was amazing. And so, yeah, it took kind of, I think it took about four weeks for them to for them to build it. In the meantime, as we were talking to our counsellor over the phone, she said, you guys should probably just get tested to see if you're carriers of anything else. <laughs> remember that phone call being like what (laughs) he's like look we do have instances where we'll go through building a probe for families like yours and then they go down the road of IVF and the baby is born with something else oh my goodness I I know and we were like surely not like come on and she said it's a one percent chance but are you really going to take even that chance? And of course, we're we're sort of thousands of dollars deep at this point. And, you know, it's weeks have gone by. Obviously, we're not taking a 1% chance on anything. Like if, if, if the 1% chance was 
sort of non-negotiable and we had to roll with it, yeah, fine, we'll take it. But if there's a way around it, then, you know, what else can we throw at the wall at this point? So here, is it the same in the UK? If you're a geriatric mother, you have what's called a panorama. It screens for the kind of most common chromosomal Mm, I do. I don't even think it's if you are a geriatric. My understanding is that it's every pregnant woman gets screened and on on the NHS and it's at the 20 week scan, I think. I was, oh God, no, or is it the 12 week scan? I can't remember which scan it is, but basically they combine the results of your blood test and your scan and take into account your age and whatever other kind of kind of I think rather basic details they can to then give you a percentage of the chances that your child might be born with Down syndrome. And then I think there's two others, something like Edward syndrome and another one beginning with P, which I've completely forgotten. That I think is offered to everyone. Right. Okay. So here I think I mean it's offered to everyone, but you have to pay for it if you're non-geriatric, but if you're a geriatric, so over the age of 35, when you're delivering, you qualify for a panorama on your health insurance. And it's, yeah, it's a chromosomal screening. So it screens for the most common chromosomal conditions. And I think, I think there's kind of four or five of them that it screens for. So, you know, great, awesome for, you know, making kind of informed choices or at least being able to prepare for, chromosomal disorders but then there's other tests that exist which we didn't know about before and the one we then went on to do is called a horizon this is from a company called natera i'm sure there's a million like of these companies that do these tests this is just the one that was available to us and basically screens for serious genetic conditions and can be done at any point. You don't have to be pregnant to do this blood test. You can do it any time and your family can do them. You can kind of go back generations if you want to. But I think it screens for like 495 genetic conditions. So I think that might be similar to what we have over here called the Harmony Test, which is something that particularly us geriatric mothers will choose to have as well whilst we're pregnant because it is supposedly a more reliable test than the one that's on the NHS and I I think it goes into a broader range of diseases beyond the ones actually that I've just looked up which is Down syndrome, Edwards syndrome and Patel syndrome probably saying that wrong. But I, but I hadn't ever heard of it being used for anyone who's not pregnant. <laughs> so I think because that's a chromosomal thing, I think you can't do a chromosomal test until you are pregnant because then you're testing right, okay. to see whether, you know, the baby has any chromosomal defects. So carrier screening, I think you'd have to do them both in kind of combined if you really want all the answers or all the kind of peace of mind. But I think, I guess what I'm trying to address here is that there's, probably a false sense of security that people get from the panorama thinking okay the most common chromosomal issues of course there are other chromosomal issues but the most common chromosomal issues have been screened for but you're missing such a massive piece of the puzzle because you haven't done anything on genetics and I think actually almost all of us are carriers of at least one genetic condition 
and like I say, there's 3,000 genes and as being carriers, it doesn't matter, like it doesn't affect your life, but we're all carriers of something and we're typically healthy because being, like I say, being a carrier doesn't matter. And if you don't have any family history, you have kind of no understanding of how if in combination this, you know, genetic condition could affect a potential child effectively knowing that we were then carriers we were like right well let's you know see if there's anything else out there affect our offspring and I think this test was like $800 now I kind of feel like I should gift this <laughs> test to all of my friends that are thinking of having kids because sort of like why wouldn't you just get informed about you know what could affect you could effectively be passing on mm. without knowing and so we got our results from that test and it did say that I was a carrier of a genetic mutation in the GLDC gene. If we'd had that back before we'd had Leo, we could have then had Rich tested and avoided the whole scenario. Not that I want to kind of change history, but it's just kind of interesting food for thought to throw out there that these tests do exist. Is this a stupid question? But did Rich need to get tested as well? Did he need to have the £800 test, $800? No, he didn't because we already knew that he was also a carrier of the GLD scene. And if he's if he's a carrier of anything else, then it doesn't matter because I'm not a carrier of anything else. So we can't combine on any other level. If it's thrown up anything else for me, then we would have had him tested. Yeah. Yeah, there is something in that, isn't there? That why isn't just every one like sort of every one one of the couple tested <laughs> yeah just yeah interesting why not I mean yeah it's it's eight hundred dollars but it's you know in the grand scheme of having a kid <laughs> and I'm sure it's one of those things that economies of scale when more people start doing it it'll become cheaper yeah and and again you know we can get onto a whole controversial genetics conversation here but I know that there are families now screening for you know cancer kind of mutations because they've got a really strong history of cancer in their families and and geneticists are now kind of being able to single those out it's really interesting so yeah so we had this probe built and that was a success we got our carrier screening results so nothing else to be concerned about and then it was on to IVF with all our kind of genetics in hand and during that IVF process, I think we'd kind of touched on this before, but we we did the five day embryo, five day old embryo freezing, and basically before they those embryos, um, our viable embryos were frozen, they took cells from, and this is how the doctor described it. So I am not being kind of overly simplistic about this, but they took cells from the egg white so if you think of the embryo as the yolk being the really important bit yeah and the white being the bit on the outside that becomes the placenta and you know they can extract a couple of cells from that without affecting the kind of structure of the child and so they took cells from that from the egg yolk I mean we're talking microscopic mm-hmm. teeny teeny tiny stuff here and sent that off packaged it off with FedEx sent it off to the genetics clinic and they were then able to test those cells against our probe and tell us whether the embryos were positive or negative for NKH. So 
Let me ask you, when you had those embryos tested, did any of them come back positive? Yes, I remember me saying that there was a one in four chance of us having another child with NKH. So one of our embryos tested positive for NKH. So um, sadly, we lost that one to research. And we had two carriers and one clear. So literally the scientific kind of spread. Oh my goodness. I mean, that's when statistics, you know, statistically you have really lived up to what they predicted. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Yeah. So we've got kind of one clear went on to become Freddie and we have two in the freezer. Amazing. And will you use one of the two in the freezer if you were to decided to have a another child? Yeah, that's we'd go down the same down the same path. Yeah. So hopefully kind of, you know, that whole process has kind of set us up. Yeah. You guys deciding that you were going to embark on the genetics journey to the embryo you getting the embryo results. How long did that happen? Oh, um, well, I mean, we got started on the journey pretty much straight away. So I want to say kind of maybe end of Jan. And we had done a transfer end of June. <laughs> God, so that's not long at all, is it? In the gra- When you consider the amount of science that you guys went through and how many different people were involved across the world... <laughs> to make that little embryo happen I mean I don't know how many people in the labs but just the fact that there were multiple countries and multiple labs and you know we had consults um follow-up consults with the hospital in Miami that treated Leo as well because we just kind of wanted to sense check everything with them so yeah there was a lot involved but it was it was so interesting I still find it really fascinating and you know I, I speak to a lot of people now who are considering kind of IVF and and the I guess we can sort of quickly talk about the pros and cons of genetic testing if you're going through IVF when you know you perhaps don't kind of even know that you're a carrier of anything but a lot of couples now are going through genetic testing to increase their chances of success with with IVF. So let's talk about that really quickly. I think that traditionally before kind of genetics testing kind of existed or or was readily accessible or available, IVF was done in a kind of natural-ish way whereby you kind of fertilize an embryo and then put it straight back in. But in doing so, you were potentially receiving an embryo or, or transferring an embryo into a mum that actually wasn't viable. And in nature, had that egg fertilized inside you, you would be quite likely to miscarry when your body realized that it wasn't great, you know, that there were some chromosomal issues or if there was some genetic issue, your body is actually really good at kind of filtering that out itself. And then, you know, sadly, women will naturally miscarry and and most commonly that that miscarriage and I'm sorry from again kind of speaking out of term or overstepping but my understanding is that quite commonly women will miscarry not because of anything that they've done but because you know an embryo was fertilized that actually wasn't 
wasn't meant to be a kind of healthy child. And so the body's kind of filtering it as I say mm, yeah, I think your your body is incredibly clever and that, I mean this is what I sort of say to people who've been through miscarriage because this is what my doctor said to me when I experienced miscarriage and I found it really helpful that he was like when you miscarry this is your body doing exactly what it's meant to be doing and it is it it can sense that there is something wrong and that the making of that baby is not going right and so it's yeah, it just stops the process, which is very intuitive of it, even though emotionally that's very difficult to go through. Right. So when you do IVF without any kind of testing, you're you you kind of have to know that you're, you know, kind of signing yourself up for for that scenario potentially. And I think that's where some clinics can get a bad rep from kind of failed cycles or, you know, getting a positive pregnancy test, but then, you know, miscarrying. And, you know, there are lots of pros and cons to PGT or um, pre-implantation genetic testing. But effectively, you know, the goal of pre-implantation genetic testing, even if you don't have something like NKH that you need to screen for, is kind of to allow the doctors and the embryologists to select embryos that are free of either a specific genetic condition that, you know, might be in your family history or of chromosomal abnormalities. So then you know that they're transferring like the highest quality embryo that's going to have the best chances of, you know, making it to a full-term pregnancy. So, yeah, I think if you're thinking about IVF, um, <laughs> I appreciate that there's a lot going on um, when you're kind of going through through that process on its own, but definitely speak to, to speak to your clinic, speak to your doctor about the options for genetic testing, for chromosomal screening, you know, your own family history and and what what's available because the technology is there. It's really, really cool. And it costs a little bit more to do to do pre-implantation testing. And you you want to talk about the pros and cons of freezing your embryos and and getting um, the embryos. Like I say, you have to kind of grow them to this blastocyst. Blastocyst is that what they're called? Yeah, That's I what think called, so. Aren't they, yeah, and then you have to remove the cells from them. So you know, talk to your doctor about all of that. But my experience of it is that it's fascinating. It's bloody cool, and the right embryologist can do a brilliant job of all of that and then you are going into you know a pregnancy that hasn't come easily with a lot more peace of mind hopefully yeah and that's and that peace of mind is so valuable when you're going through pregnancy which is a naturally anxiety causing time for most women yeah so I hope I haven't butchered that from a from a genetic testing embryo descri- descriptor <laughs> Well, it, ma- it made sense to me who it has a very non-scientific brain. Yeah, so. I, can we just caveat this with I am not a scientist or a doctor. So if you would like to know more, <laughs> please speak to someone that is. <laughs> well, Maya, thank you again for sharing your story and shining a light on the world of genetics. It is incredibly fascinating and I'm sure it's incredibly helpful for a lot of people and amazing to see where the world of genetics is going to go in the future. Oh, so cool. So now on to our weekly mother's moan. Maya, tell us what you are moaning about this week. 
Well, apart from the rain today, which I'm really not loving, I think I'm going to moan about blood tests. And I don't know what your experience was, Zinnia, but through even like normal pregnancy, but particularly through genetics testing and a sort of a, you know, through IVF when you have to have your hormone levels tested, there's just a lot of blood work that no one ever really kind of warns you about. And it's a lot of fasting, not fasting, turning up at a clinic, waiting for your blood to be drawn, then like waiting for the test results. And I don't know, I felt like a a bit of a pincushion by the end of it. So anyone that is kind of, I'm not, I'm not nervous about needles, but I don't love them. And I think, uh, yeah, I feel you. If you're out there going through through anything requiring a lot of blood tests at the moment I hate them <laughs> that is so true I had completely forgotten about the whole blood test thing because I think you forget right you know it's sort of like I mean I say this having not given birth but you know it's like as like people say when you give birth you forget etc like you just there's so much other stuff that follows all of the blood tests that they kind of fade into insignificance. So, you know, I'm glad that you've resurfaced the blood test because there are a lot. And I remember, especially for going for those IVF bloods, I just was like vial after vial after vial. <laughs> How much blood do you actually need? And, and and I don't know if you have this, but I have, I, I think it might be because I have quite low blood pressure. And so sometimes they really struggle to get oh, my blood God. out. And I went into one session where I also I think it was cold and I hadn't eaten um, breakfast that morning yet. So my blood was running particularly slow and they struggled. And I had three different people come in and eventually they told me to go home and come back another day because oh, <laughs> they had ruined both arms. That's just what you want. Come again. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly. I hear you on the blood tests. Good yeah. moan. Good moan. Right. So enough about blood and gore. Zinnia, what do you want to big up this week? Well, today, Maya, I am going to big up people who share their stories, which I know sounds like I'm bigging ourselves up. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm totally okay with that. But anyway, no matter how big or small your experience, it takes courage to share your story and put yourself out there. Definitely. Whether that is a miscarriage or fertility journey and baby loss or just like you've just shared with us your kind of rare genetic disorder and adventure down the genetic journey each and every time these stories are shared it's helping to break down the taboo and to inspire and I think inform others as well as just to normalize what might otherwise be shielded behind closed doors right and and actually it's not even helpful for those who are going through it it's it's also helpful for people who know people who might be going through it as Mm. well and might not fully understand. So, and I completely get that sharing isn't for everyone and that's totally fine because it is a big thing to decide to do and can leave you feeling very exposed. But I'm always amazed how many people crawl out of the woodwork when I share my experience. It's really comforting, isn't it? To know that you're not alone. Totally. Absolutely. And like you say, it's, It is amazing how many people crawl out of the woodwork, particularly here around IVF, I think. And it's it's sad, isn't it, when you hear people say, oh, you know, I had a loss too and 
heartbreaking that they've you know potentially never told anyone about it yeah exactly I mean I remember when when Isabel died and I saw my neighbor who I've lived opposite for six years and she sort of gave me a big hug and we both had a little cry together and she said oh I lost my son he would be 20 now when I think he was sort of 28 weeks or something. Aww. You know, and she's like, I, I still think about him all the time. And that yeah. was 20 years ago. And I doubt we would have ever have had that conversation no. had, yeah, had it not um, happened to me. So thank you for all the sharers out there because sometimes it can feel like you're alone and it's only you when often there's a whole heap of other people just like you experiencing something very similar. Yeah. Well done, everyone who's been brave enough to share. So thanks again for listening this week. Next week, we're going to talk about surrogacy. I cannot wait for this one, Zinnia. I just can't wait to hear all about it. You're going to share your experience and the route you went down after a ruptured uterus resulting in the stillbirth of your daughter, Isabel, and that meaning that you can carry again oh thank you no pressure on me then so make sure you tune in next wednesday for another episode of making it to motherhood and in the meantime don't forget to subscribe to our podcast as well as follow us on instagram at making it to motherhood and spread the word share our podcast with your friends and your family pretty please we hope you have a great week and thanks for listening bye